Have you heard the birds sing, the trees breathe, and the rain fall? The stories we tell ourselves are what create our reality. Hi, I'm Julia, your host, and you're listening to Terra Stories, the podcast that will awaken your mind to new perspectives, to reconnect to yourself, to nature, and to become an actor of change in tomorrow's world. The monk, when they're reading out the scripts, one of the first things they do is they always pay respect to the land, respect to all the mountains, all the things that are there in the environment. Like, for example, if my parents is from like this part of the mountain region in Nepal, right? Mount Everest in our language is Chomoloma. So Chomoloma is like a goddess of the mountain, which we see as like a protector of the community. Languages open the door to different visions of the world. They are the cradle of many cultures. Dawa is a Sherpa Nepali woman who grew up in a culture where mountains are deities and nature is an entity to be respected. As she grew up and moved from Nepal to India and then the United States, She embarked on a path that called her and led her to reconnect with her roots, rediscovering the wisdom and knowledge of her ancestors. What did she learn? Does reconnecting with nature mean reconnecting with our roots? Is traditional knowledge the key to the world we envision? Take a journey to the Himalayas and discover Dawa's fascinating story. But before, don't forget to activate the little bell on your favorite platform so you don't miss any new episodes and support Terra Stories by adding five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really helps. Now, let's go back to the show. Thank you so much, Dawa, to be present in Terra Stories. I'm so happy to have you here. Can you maybe start by presenting yourself to Terra Stories audience? Thank you, Julia. Yeah, I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. So yeah, before I, I get started, I quickly want to do a land acknowledgement. I am situated in Turtle Island, also known as the United States, and currently based out of Lenape Hoking or New York City. I want to recognize the Lenape people as the traditional stewards of the stolen land and honor their continuing relationship with this territory. And also want to thank the land for keeping me as a refuge. Every time I do a land acknowledgement, I also want to quickly say that this place has been uh, such a big refuge for me. And I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm Dawayangzi Sharpa. I am a Sharpa Nepali woman. And I usually keep the Sharpa-Nepali as a hyphenated because I associate and identify a lot as a Sharpa because of the cultural roots I have with the Sharpa community and Nepali because of my nationality. But just putting that together is somewhat kind of always like relating back to my roots. And for a quick background on my educational, like the credentials on my education, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Biology and a Master of Science in Environmental Policy. And I've been working in the environmental space for the past seven to 10 years now. 
So you grew up in Nepal within the Nepalese Sherpa community. Can you tell us more about this childhood you had? Mm -hmm. Sure. Like I mentioned, I associate or like I kind of identify a lot as a Sherpa woman. And the Sherpa means the actual word itself is Sherwa, W-A. And uh, it means people from the East. And we're basically very, like, we've historically been a very migratory community, meaning that kind of almost nomadic lifestyle and moving in between different regions up until, like, the Sherpa community itself kind of settled in this northern part of Nepal, which has the Himalayan region. And so my community, where I say Sherpa, like, is mostly associated with the areas around the Mount Everest, or like, which is basically the highest mountain that is there. So the community itself is like really tied to the Himalayan region up in the mountains. And my grandparents were from there. And then my parents were also like born and brought up in that region. And then they moved to the city for better opportunities in terms of like getting financial and uh, being economically stable. And then I was born and brought up in the capital city of the country, which is Kathmandu. And I particularly associate a lot with Bodhanath, which is a small area in Kathmandu and a very famous tourist destination as well. But it's mostly uh, very heavily concentrated with Buddhist community. And that's basically like if I have to associate with a place, Bodha is going to be a big part of my life. And then the other thing is I was in a hostel. So basically hostel is like, you know, you come home like once in a month for two days and I, I did that for, for 10 years when I was there in Kathmandu and the rest of the time like when I was home I would spend it with my grandparents who brought me up so my grandparents has people who were like born and brought up in that a very cultural aspect of the community they always installed and they always kind of like put their belief and perspective in my life and so as I reflect right now there is a lot of like cultural aspect that has shaped the way I think about or relate to the environment, to nature, to anything that I usually come across. And the other thing is, I definitely want to mention that I, because Sherpa is an ethnic minority in Nepal, and the language that I speak is Nepali and English, but like I don't speak in Sherpa, which is really sad. But I'm like taking lessons and I'm trying to revitalize that aspect of my life and also kind of like reclaim uh, language as a way to connect with my roots and also kind of to preserve that aspect of my culture. And your grandparents were speaking this language or Nepalese? Oh, yeah, yeah. My grandparents spoke in Sherpa and my parents also speak in Sherpa. But because I was like in a hostile environment and there was a lot of political changes happening in the country. And Nepali as a language is kind of, you know, once it's declared as a national language, we kind of have to adopt to that lifestyle. So a lot of minority languages were lost in that process and including like my cultural language, the Sherpa language that was also like lost in the process because there's a generational gap because of the preference towards learning the national language. And do you think that part of Sherpa's culture is dying when you're not learning the language? That is definitely true because in a lot of indigenous cultures and in a lot of like cultures that are like land-based cultures, the way land is perceived or the way land is organized in terms of like in the community is described or kind of inscribed in languages and language play a big part in anything you do so you know when for example in Sherpa language if they they are like kind of mentioning something about land and I don't understand that because I don't know how to speak in Sherpa so 
that there is like a loss in that inheriting that set of knowledges from like the elders. So now you're taking classes. I think it's amazing. Do you see like maybe aspects of your culture in a different way or things that your grandparents taught you and you understand it in a different way by learning the language? Yes, definitely. So one of the first things is that my grandparents always took me to all these monasteries, like you call, we call this Goomba. So they used to like take us there and then we had to sit and listen to like hours and hours of monks reading scripts. These are like, mil like you know, centuries old scripts. These are like scripts that have been written like 500 or a thousand years ago. And then So all these knowledge systems that are actually like kind of captured in the scripts that the monk is reading out, I would not be able to understand because I don't like know what they're saying. And then like right now, if I have to hear like a monk, because those traditions are still very intact. But now, like if I have to hear it, I think one of the big so-called complaint from my generation of people who uh, are in those spaces is that we don't understand what the monk is saying, for example, right? The monk is reading something and uh, we don't understand. So we need like a proper set of either a translation so that we respect their time and our time or we to either adopt a way to revitalize the language, right? The monk, when they're reading out the scripts, one of the first things they do is they always pay respect to the land. And then they always pay respect to all the mountains, all the things that are there in the environment. Like, for example, if my parents is from like this part of the mountain region in Nepal, right? Mount Everest in our language is Chomoloma. So Chomoloma is like a goddess of the mountain, which we see as like a protector of the community. It took me like 25 years or so to learn that aspect. So you could imagine the amount of things that I have to learn in the future. But that's just like one of the most basic things, right? It's amazing how you see with that word, you understand the amazing link they have with nature and the gratefulness they have within them. I'm sure you knew about it, but you maybe learn also new aspects of your culture. Entirely, because as soon as I registered that Mount Everest, which is a very European version of like climbing and summiting the mountain and like, you know, being like the top tourist destination for like hikers and climbers and kind of being plastered in like almost all the flyers for Nepal. And then you kind of hear that word Chomolongma, which means the mountain goddess, right? And then you have a whole shift of like, okay, this is like a very sacred yeah. space, like for the community. It has to be respected. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that that aspect, that's like the most like simplest form I could explain in terms of like how things like changes when you when you have this new set of like revitalization, I guess. Do you have maybe another world views your community was sharing? What is their vision of nature, of the world? Yeah, sure. I can quickly touch on the Buddhist worldviews. So again, like this is also a concept that I've been very recently learning and kind of reflecting a lot as it ties to my community, as it ties to my professional and personal space. The Buddhist worldview is like kind of understanding that it is a multi-species relationship, meaning that there is this aspect of ritual life 
The Tibetan Buddhism part, which is another aspect that my culture follows and the Shapakov community generally is tied to, is the Tibetan Buddhism. And then they have a very, uh, it's the, tan the tantric or the ritual life that we have, meaning that like, you know, every time there is anything that is happening, it can be an event, it can be a construction that's happening, for example, or like you're buying a house. You always pay respect to the space. You always pay respect to the land, to the space, or to the environment, or like anything that is altered in the environment, you are always asking for permission and honoring it and taking the step. So for example, like I buy this plot of land, there's a monk that comes in and then kind of does all kinds of like rituals to kind of appease the spirits within that space. So if I'm buying a new apartment in New York City, for example, the first thing that we do is kind of have the monk come in do a set of rituals and kind of pay respect to the land and pay respect to the space and asking for permission to live and flourish. So that is the most basic thing that the community does. And in my generation, we kind of have that piece. We do it for the sake of doing it because, they, you know, your parents are asking you to do it or like, you know, it's something that we've always done. I think in my generation, the missing piece is that we kind of don't have the understanding of why it is being done and again it's tied back to the loss of language because we don't understand what the monk is saying it's very hard for us to process like why is this set of rituals important you decided to live for your studies to india can you tell us more about why did you choose india what did you learn there if you have stories to share with us about your experience there Sure. So I finished my 10th grade in Nepal and then uh, so 11 to 12 is seen as like a college. It's more like it's not like a extension of a high school like it's in most of the Western countries, but it's seen as like 11 to 12. You graduate 10 and then you have like 11 to 12 as a college life. So it was a very random decision. I was just like, one day I was just like, oh, I heard schools in like, you know, this part of India is really good. So I went to go there. So I just packed up my bags and I just like left, <laughs> left to go to India. And then I was like looking for schools and like this 15, 16 year old just like walking around, like looking for admissions in the mountains, in the hills of Northeast India. I got really lucky. It was a really good school, like a good set of people that I met. And I was doing like science as a major. And then I had plans to like do engineering. Uh, which is funny but I had plans to do engineering and then again like reflecting back to like my urban life in Kathmandu like you know the the water issues the urban planning was so bad so I think that was one of the biggest factor that I was like okay you know if you do engineering you go back to your country you kind of like make sure that the urban planning is better and then like help the communities with that so that was the angle that I was thinking of And then the other thing that was very prominent during my time there in Northeast India, in to be more specific, in like the hill stations of Darjeeling or like Kalimpong and Sikkim, there was the hydropower dams. Because back like in 2010, there was this whole rush of like hydro dams in the region. And um, the central government of India had like proposed like, you know, just utilizing the water from the river and then they were just building dams like you know every every 20 minutes you'd see a new dam or like every one hour you'd see a new dam so the amount of dams that were being proposed and these were not like small dams these were like massive dams that was something like you know as you're going like in between different towns in the hills you would see like tons and tons of dams You decided to go to the United States to work, and now you're working also with 
indigenous people, local communities? How did this will to protect them, to take their needs into account, followed you? So when I first started my bachelor's in the United States, the goal was to kind of be an engineer and kind of like, you know, because I was looking at the issues, but I was looking at it from a very Western perspective in terms of like, okay, if I build this for this community, then the water issue is going to be like improved, right? So it was a very Western perspective. And like up until like maybe my second or third year, I was taking a couple of environmental classes and my men- one of my mentor, who was also the chair of the biology program, he asked me to like take this class, which was expanding environmental consciousness. And uh, that one class, I think, has changed the way I was looking at the problem or the issue. And then that course really like tied in a lot of like aspects of ecofeminism and how religion plays into part when it comes to environment and a lot of other concepts that were not in any of the courses in physics, in chemistry, in biology, nothing, because these are all very Western centric frameworks, right? Like I'm not saying biology is wrong. And just seeing the way that is presented or the way it is kind of institutionalized is the issue that, like, you know, because it is not taking into aspect the the human side of the thing, if I have to, like, spell it out, right? You're just looking at it as, like, biology, chemistry, physics. You're not looking at the cultural aspect. You're not looking at, like, how people relate to environments. You're not looking at how people relate to species, for example. That shift happened, and I think when that happened, I took steps to reflect on my own upbringing, on my own culture, on my own self. And I think that was the initial step. And when I started my graduate program, I think that just kept coming like up again and again. And I have to be very thankful for the program at the new school, which has amazing set of professors. And one of the professors who, who has his background in indigenous knowledges, oh, like, you know, kind of taught climate science, climate change through that lens of indigenous cultures. When that happened, like that also completely like shifted the way I was thinking about climate policy. And all these things kind of like slowly added up and kind of like, you know, really pushed me to reflect on a lot of things and kind of again it came back to like tying back to your culture right because I I kept like studying and doing more and more education but the most basic thing was just like reflecting on my own community so that was really interesting. (laughs) Currently I'm working as a social safeguards technical specialist with the rights and communities program at the wildlife conservation society. And that work itself is also very, one of the main things that I, that I was looking forward to is like kind of understanding the international space and understanding how the international, like, you know, in the, in, in the international space, how communities are being protected or communities are being taken into consideration and, and like how like policies that are made within the organization is taking that into their consideration as they are operating in these different spaces. And so right now I kind of like help to streamline internal organizational policies and also very project-specific policies. And the social safeguarding is basically making sure that we respect and protect the rights of indigenous people and local communities with whom we partner with and also their well-being. And what is really inspiring to see is that there is more and more funders kind of taking this into like consideration and prioritizing this framing of like making sure that indigenous people and local communities are protected and respected 
And this is also kind of driving the international framework. And again, I must mention that this work is only happening because of all the fights that are happening on the ground, right? Like indigenous people like really advocating, really putting forward their belief, putting forward their worldviews, putting forward their work of kind of protecting and being the guardians of uh, protecting the environment and biodiversity and all these different aspects that the organizations or like, you know, that international, like uh, internationally um, based institutions are now catching up with. How can we support indigenous people and local communities at our level? Again, like advocating in any space possible, right? So for example, if you follow like any indigenous people and then there is like, there is an advocacy campaign happening, like trying to see how you can advocate or even like just for example, if you're on social media, you just share their stories and kind of create that awareness that these communities are fighting for their lands and these communities are fighting to protect their rivers. These communities are fighting to protect their landscape, for example. So anything that has to do with awareness is always really supportive. That's the most basic thing. And beyond that, indigenous people, funding for them is really, really low. So if there is any way that you can trust in terms of like kind of providing funds, I think that is one of the biggest things that could help them sustain their fight. And the other biggest thing that is really important is to understand the fight for the land because indigenous communities are they're intertwined with the land and their beliefs and their customs their livelihood everything is tied to the land so these lands may or may not be legally owned by them so that's another factor like you know because there is customary land there is like different ways that land is like owned by communities and understanding how to support that protection so that the lands are not being taken away by the state, by the private organizations or by private companies for their own benefits, right? So making sure that lands are being protected because right now one of the big things that is happening is a lot of the mining companies are mining lands that are mostly indigenous people's territories for their benefit and kind of extracting all the minerals, extracting like all the all the things that they could find and kind of polluting the environment that the indigenous people live. Where the current organization, which is the Wildlife Conservation Organization, right now, like one of the one of the big things is recognizing that indigenous people form only 5% of the global population, but their traditional lands, resources, and territories cover 22% of the Earth's surface and protect 80% of its biodiversity. So for a wildlife conservation organization, which like is primarily like protecting the wildlife, it needs to partner with these indigenous communities and local communities so that the biodiversity is protected. So there is like this common alignment of looking at protecting biodiversity. For indigenous people, it's something that they are like they are integrated in the environment, right? They they see land not as a separate thing. They see land as their extension of their identity or extension of their life. And for organizations like the Wildlife Conservation Society, for example, their like, you know, mission is to like protect biodiversity. So you can see that there is a link in there. So supporting indigenous people and local communities is a way to achieving to protecting biodiversity, supporting them through funding, through technical support, through any other avenues is a way forward. And do you feel yourself an indigenous person? Do you feel like part of indigenous people? 
that is something that I'm reflecting on a lot. Uh, like I said, the community is directly tied to land, right? So indigenous people have a relationship with their land. And for me, as a Sharpa woman who has moved away from the, the central land in Nepal and living in the United States, like if I say I'm an indigenous woman, there is a bit of a disconnection, like the framing itself. I understand like a lot of my cultural aspects are tied to indigenous cultures. And I can see that and I can, through that lens, I can say that, okay, I'm an indigenous woman. But if I have to kind of like take another step and be like, okay, I'm not living there. I'm an immigrant to the United States right now. So that disconnection with the land is something that I'm very reflective of. And that's when I cannot be confident with saying that I'm an indigenous woman. But of course, Sherpa is an indigenous community. So if I have to tie it through my cultural and my ethnic roots can I can claim so there is a different lens that you can use but yeah it's not as simple <laughs> yeah I understand and it's beautiful seeing this like this I see that your reflection shows that it's an important thing also to identify yourself with this in your opinion how can people reconnect to nature I think the first step is definitely to decolonize right and when I say decolonize, not the trending word right now, because it has been co-opted by like corporations, which is really sad to see. But decolonization in terms of just kind of recognizing that the Western lens or the Western systems that have created this construct of knowledges within our lives and within our within our spaces and taking a step back and reflecting on like other systems, like, you know, uh, for example, indigenous worldviews, for example, and for me, it was kind of taking a step back and like reconnecting with the roots and understanding like the land relationships or like cultural relationship and trying to see how I can revitalize different aspects of it. And then the other thing is to recognize a false solution to climate crisis, right? Because like I said, like hydropower dams, like it's something that is very destructive to different communities, but is taken or in the global landscape, like the United Nations protocols or like any other forms of like kind of creating payment for ecosystem services, for example, sees it as a green solution, as a solution to climate crisis. So kind of understanding that anything, if you are in a space where you are projecting an environmental movement, really reflecting on that aspect and kind of understanding that it may, it may be carbon accounting framework that makes sense. Because if you think about climate crisis, one of the key things that is always put forward is the climate carbon. Like all the IPCC report, everything that you see, the International Panel for Climate Change, any report, any international report, any global climate policy report, the carbon is always the central piece. And then maybe right now there is a little bit of recognition of like, its impact on the its impact on the cultures, its impact on the indigenous people, its impact on like local communities, but it's very recent. So that framing has to change. And unless that framing changes, I don't think there's going to be a true movement towards solving the climate crisis. That leads to my last question. It's a tricky question that I love to ask. What ancestor would you like to be? And what is the word you would like to live in? And what is the word you imagine in the future? This definitely has to be the most difficult question. <laughs> in terms of kind of like thinking back into like what ancestor would I like to be? I think I usually 
want to refrain from using the word I because climate crisis itself, if you have to think about it, is such a big issue that one person cannot solve it, right? So every time I'm thinking about the the next next generation or like kind of the next phase, kind of always creating that community of people, community of cohorts who work together, kind of believe and fight against false solutions and kind of come together and have hope to uh, towards a sustainable future, right? Always understanding that because I know that there is a lot of fear with climate crisis and especially for the younger people, um, there is a lot of like anxiety. There, There is a thing called climate change anxiety. So every time that happens, kind of taking a step back and reflecting that we are not going to be an individual solver. We can play a part in it. And I think one of the parts that I want to play is to kind of be the bridge between the next generation and then the previous generation. Like looking to my elders, learning their knowledge, learning from them the systems and the knowledge systems, and then kind of being this bridge to show why it is important or to kind of uh, make them reflect the connections with their culture, with their community, and why it is important so that we can in our environments and we can also like you know solve the climate crisis together more than solving the climate crisis right now the big problem is like making sure that we fight against the false solutions thank you so much dawa it was so inspiring and learning about your childhood the way you you learn and you grew as a person and as someone that has powerful let's say culture and and traditions behind her. Thank you, Julia. The podcast is coming to an end. Thank you so much for listening. You can find Terra Stories on Instagram at terrastories.studio and on LinkedIn. If you liked the episode, talk about it around you, share it with your friends. That's the thing that would give the biggest boost to the podcast. And don't hesitate to write me about the topics or personalities you'd like me to invite or address. I wish you a beautiful day or evening.